Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 22. Isaiah, chapter 22. Hear now the word of our God. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town? Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you, and whirl you around and around, and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I sometimes wonder whether thanks be to God or Lord have mercy is the right response to that. Because what... Isaiah is speaking about in Isaiah 22 uh, has been otherwise phrased in the creed, he descended into hell. In a very real way, what Isaiah is describing is the, the cutting off 
and the destruction, the judgment. Have you, have you ever had a peg break? You know, you, you, you hang stuff on pegs all the time, but you, know, you, you overload it, you put too much weight on it, and the peg comes crashing down. And at the end of our chapter, that's what God says is going to happen to Eliakim. Because Isaiah 22 is speaking of the coming judgment when the Lord God of hosts has a day when he will bring judgment upon Jerusalem. And when the day of judgment comes, the Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts calls for weeping and mourning, but instead there's, there's joy and gladness. It almost seems a fatalistic joy and gladness, though. You know, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul will quote that in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, if there is no resurrection, then actually the response of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day would be appropriate. If there is no resurrection, if there's nothing after death, then what matters is live your life to the fullest as long as you got, and if you know you're going to die tomorrow, then you might as well have a party today. And Isaiah then speaks to, to Shebna, the steward of the house of David, and says, the steward of the house of David is almost certainly one of the ringleaders in this whole, hey, let's have a party. And so God says to, to Shebna, no, no, God's going to set you aside and he's going to replace you with Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And at first, everything's going to go well for him. He shall open, none shall shut. He shall shut, none open. But Eliakim isn't a strong enough peg. You can't hang all the weight of Jerusalem on Eliakim. You can't hang all the weight of Israel on Eliakim. You can't hang the whole weight of humanity upon Eliakim. There is only one peg strong enough for that. There is only one peg that can hold all the weight. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's only when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Only then is there a peg that can hold the weight of cities, of peoples, of humanity. Our psalm of response speaks of how God has put all things under the feet of the Son of Man. And in one sense, as we sing it, you'll, you'll be thinking of creation, which, right, true, yes. But of course... Um, God did not give dominion to the Son of Man. He gave dominion to man, to Adam. And Adam wasn't a son of man. So when Psalm 8 speaks of how God has put all things under the Son of Man, that's more speaking of David. That's more speaking of the Son of David. There's a way in which, there's a way in which Psalm 8 is seeing this creational image as this is what the son of David does. This is who David is supposed to be. It's related to our theme from Isaiah 22, because is, is David a peg that can hold the weight of humanity? And of course, no, because Jesus is the one who is the second Adam, the son of David. He is the son of man who can hold the weight of the world because he is the one through whom God made the world. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, hear now the word of our God. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, he is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if I, humanly speaking, fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some of you, for some, have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Last time we, we talked about how Christ descended into hell. How he took upon himself the wrath and curse that we deserved. He entered the realm of the dead so that we might never dwell in darkness. And this is really where what Christ did in, in 
his descent into hell, was he took the wrath and curse of God so that even though, yes, we will die, it's like what Jesus says in John's Gospel when he says, the one who, who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and the one who lives and believes in me shall never die. So in that sense, you will never experience the, the sort of the, the tearing apart of yourself that is the, that's which, which is what death is all about. Because even though you will die, the one who lives and believes in me, Jesus says, will never die. In other words, will never experience that tearing apart. Sure, your body and your soul will not be together, but they'll both be with Jesus. And since he is your integrity, he holds you together. But what is this, whole, what is this resurrection that we're talking about? Did Jesus stay dead? By no means. The Apostles' Creed says it this way, The third day he rose again from the dead. The Nicene Creed adds a phrase, The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. That line, according to the scriptures, is simply quoted from 1 Corinthians 15.4. He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. Part of the point that, that Paul's making, and that the Creed follows, is that the whole of the Old Testament is all about the death and resurrection of the beloved Son. It's... It's such, a, it's such a true point that there's a, a famous Jewish Old Testament scholar that has written a book by that title. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but he agrees that the whole of the Old Testament is about the death and resurrection of the beloved son. So when Paul says, according to the scriptures, and when the creed says, according to the scriptures, one of the most famous Jewish scholars who doesn't even believe in Jesus would agree with the creed on that point. <laughs> yeah. Whether it was Isaac whom Abraham received back, as it were, from the dead. Or Israel, who descended into hell, i.e. Egypt, and was restored to life again 400 years later. Or Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Or Elijah and Elisha, who each raised a beloved son from the dead as signs to Israel that their only hope is that God raises his son from the dead. The whole Old Testament is all about the death and resurrection of the beloved son. So, why does the resurrection matter? Paul works through this in 1 Corinthians 15, and particularly in verses 12 to 34, he he works through three basic questions. Why is the resurrection necessary? Why is it so important? But then, what is the purpose of the resurrection? And thirdly, how should you approach life in the light of the resurrection? So first, let's look at why is the resurrection necessary? It seems like Paul is dealing with some people in the first century who, uh, who seemed okay with the resurrection of Jesus, but not so much everybody else. The resurrection was a controversial doctrine, both for Jews and for Greeks. Many Jews, those in the party of the Sadducees, and, and it wasn't just the elite, but there were others who agreed with them, they, were, they, they denied the resurrection of the body. They said, no, no. No, when, when you die, you, your soul lives after, but your body just rots in the grave. Most Greeks thought the resurrection was absurd. The body is the source and occasion for most of the pain and suffering we endure. Why would you want your body back? So to preach resurrection was foolishness to the Greeks. Paul replies that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Because if you understand who Jesus is, then his resurrection becomes the paradigm for everyone else. And that's why Paul begins with, with preaching and history. 
in verses 12 and 13. If, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's just laid out in verses 1 and following those things that are of first importance. The gospel, the good news is that Jesus died and was buried and that Jesus was raised from the dead and appeared to over 500 people. And he says, well, whether it was I or others who preached this to you, so we preach and so you believed. Notice the connection between the, the fact of the matter of Jesus' resurrection, the preaching of Jesus' resurrection, and your faith in Jesus' resurrection. History, preaching, and faith all go together. Our, our preaching is, is not just a, a matter of opinion or philosophy. We preach a message about something that happened in history, something that happened in space and time on the ground in Judea in the time of Pontius Pilate. And such is the connection between the resurrection of Jesus in the middle of history and the resurrection of the dead at the end of history, that if you lose one, you lose the other. And what is that connection? Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. History, preaching, and faith are all bound up together. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then my preaching is pointless. And your faith is pointless. I have nothing worth saying and and what have you been doing here? In verse 15, Paul pushes even harder. We are found to be misrepresenting God. If there is no resurrection, then we are basically a bunch of liars, and why are you listening to us? Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, then the apostles are false witnesses. If there is no resurrection, then Paul and the rest of the apostles have lied about God. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, then sin hasn't been dealt with. If, you know, there are many today who who would want to say that, oh yeah, the Christian message is a good message, but yeah, the actual actual Jesus, well, yeah, yeah, he died, but he's still buried there in, in, in Judea and, yeah. Well, if, if Jesus is still buried in Judea, then there is, what, what's the point of the Christian faith? If you remove the resurrection, then believing in him won't do any good. I mean, Christianity without the resurrection isn't Christianity anymore. Anyone can say, we ought to love people. Jews, Buddhists, Muslims, atheists. You can find, I mean, every religion, every philosophy that has ever walked the face of the earth has agreed. We ought to love people. The problem is, we're not very good at it. How are you doing at loving people? Do all the people around you feel loved by you? Okay, let's make this personal. Do you always feel loved by me? No. Because there are times when I have failed to love you. And so if, when you feel like, oh, does, does pastor really care? Sometimes 
it's because I haven't. Your pastor has not always loved you well. The distinctiveness of Christianity is not that Christianity makes people love people better. What makes Christianity distinctive is that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel, the good news, is that God has done what we could not do for ourselves. Now, if we respond to that gospel by doing worse at loving each other, then we haven't believed the gospel. When I fail at loving you well, I am called to repent and turn away from my lazy ways and believe the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus and love you better. That's what the resurrection is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. That it's, it's not that sort of Christianity has a better way of loving people. No. Christianity has the good news that God has done what we could not do for ourselves. That he has sent his only begotten son to die so that we might have life. Paul is convinced that the resurrection of Jesus is the heart and soul of the gospel. Without the resurrection of Jesus, not only is faith obliterated, but hope is obliterated too. Verse 18, if then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, they're, just, they're dead, they're gone. If in Christ we have hope in, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The preaching of the apostles, the faith of the church, and the result that if our hope in Christ is only about this life, then we've missed the point of the resurrection. Then we might as well go back to, to Isaiah 22 and say, you know what? Shebna was right. We're going to die tomorrow, so let's have a big party. What's the point? So... Paul has laid out this series of assertions connecting the the resurrection of Jesus, the preaching of the apostles, and the faith of the church. His conclusion has been that if our hope in Christ is only about this life, then we've missed the point of the resurrection, we've missed the point of the gospel. Now in verses 20 to 34, Paul will flesh this out. Verses 20 to 28 provide the argument for the purpose of the resurrection, and why Christ's resurrection must result in our resurrection. And then he'll talk about why we would be most pitiable if it's only in this life that we hope. So in verses 20 to 28, Paul lays out three things that the resurrection of Christ does. First, he, he brings life. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Then he comes to establish the kingdom, verses 20 to 20, 23 to 25, Christ is the first fruits of the whole of humanity. And then thirdly, he has come the resurrection, in the resurrection to destroy death, bringing all things in subjection to him. So, in verses 20 to 22, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And this is where he brings in the first fruits theme. And, and, he, and he compares Christ with Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, in Greek... He, he does this by, adds emphasis by using the article. Uh, now it, for as in the Adam all die, so also in the Christ shall all be made alive. Now, in English we don't do this. If I said, my wife is the Virginia, you'd be like, okay, that's what he, 
But in, in Greek, when you add the article to a person's name, it adds emphasis. Which Adam are we talking about? Which Christ? Well, there's the Adam and there's the Christ. All other human beings find their identity and meaning in one of these two. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And in Adam, all die. Okay, you may not have died yet, but you will. By a man came death. And there is no way to escape the consequences of Adam's sin apart from the Christ. The wages of sin is death. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, therefore all die. But that's not the end of the story. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Christ has come in order to repair Adam's fault. In Jesus, God has come and put on our humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Heidelberg Catechism says this very nicely when he says, He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who is himself a sinner cannot pay for others. And he must be true God so that by the power of his Godhead he might bear in his manhood the burden of God's wrath and so obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Calvin puts it more poetically. His task was to restore us to God's grace as to make the children of men children of God, of the heirs of Gehenna, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. Who could have done this had not the self-same Son of God become the Son of Man and had not so taken what was ours as to impart what was His to us, to make what was His by nature ours by grace? It was His task to swallow up death. Who but the life could do this? It was His task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness could do this? It was his task to rout the powers of world and air. Who but a power higher than world and air could do this? Now, where does life or righteousness or lordship and authority of heaven lie but with God alone? Therefore, our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. It must be a son of Adam who repairs Adam's fault. But as the whole of the Old Testament has proven to us by now, no son of Adam could survive the wrath and curse of God. Sheol, the grave, came for each one and held on to them. God narrows his curse from all humanity in Adam to Israel, to David, and finally to one man, Jesus, so that in that one man, Jesus, the blessing of God might now extend to the new humanity. And that is the second purpose of the resurrection of Christ, to establish the kingdom, each in his own order. Verse 23, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. As the firstfruits, Christ is the first to be raised. Now you might say, wait, 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 hold on. What about Lazarus? Lazarus was raised. Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. But there's a difference between being raised from the dead and resurrection. Lazarus and the Old Testament examples, they were raised from the dead, and then later in their lives, they died. 
that's a temporary resurrection. But Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again. He lives forever at the right hand of the Father. His resurrection burst the gates of hell. He arose from the dead by the power of an everlasting life. He now sits at the right hand of the Father in his glorified body. There is an embodied man sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's why Paul speaks of him as the firstfruits. The first to be raised, but as the firstfruits that the point is that the rest of humanity will also be raised up when he comes. And verses 24 and 25 describe what he will do when he comes. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What is Jesus doing right now? We'll talk more about this next week. But what Paul says here is, he is destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, don't, don't take destroy in the sense of obliterate. Paul is, the word Paul is using here means to nullify, to render ineffective. What does it mean that Jesus is nullifying every rule and authority? Well, remember the Adam and the Christ. God had created man and given him dominion over the works of his hands. In Psalm 8 that we sang earlier, there's a creational echo there, but it's also about the son of David being called to, in a sense, take on the, the calling of Adam. Rule, authority, and power had been given to Adam, but when Adam sinned, rule, authority, and power was usurped by the devil. Indeed, one could say that death ruled humanity as we were governed by the fear of death. So what is Jesus doing now? Jesus is rendering ineffective all rule, all authority, and power. Everything is being put in subjection under his feet. He is bringing to nothing every power that opposes him. Now, you might be tempted to think that he's not doing a very good job at that. After all, 2,000 years later, the wicked still seem to have considerable rule, authority, and power. But remember that the cross demonstrated that God's ways of overthrowing powers may not look quite like ours. How does Christ rule? How does he render ineffective every rule, every authority, and power? It's not by the weapons of this age. Neither the sword nor the ballot box can establish the kingdom of Jesus. How is his kingdom established? To the preaching of the word, to the preaching of the cross. Sure, in one sense I'm thankful for 1,500 years of Christian rulers in Europe who wanted their people to believe in Jesus. But too often we lost sight of whose kingdom we were focusing on. But through it all, Jesus continues to bring to nothing every rule, every authority and power, every kingdom that opposes Jesus, every power that withstands his reign, every kingdom that seeks to establish its own power by link, linking on to Jesus' name and saying, oh, if I, if I, does that mean I get what... Jesus says, no, no, no. I am bringing to nothing every rule and authority and power. Every, every kingdom that opposes Jesus is being nullified. I mean, think about, think about our, our liberal secular culture. What is it that drives people? Most people that I talk to They want to see love, peace, joy, human flourishing. They want to put an end to suffering and oppression and evil. 
Those are all noble ends. There's a sense in which you could say, well, what they want is the kingdom of Jesus. They just don't know where to find it. But the attempt to establish the kingdom of Jesus by force or by popular election will invariably fail. Because it attempts to use rule, authority, and power rather than the foolishness of preaching. It's part of the fun of being a student of history. Because in every age, the faithful have thought that the gospel was perishing. You might think, oh, during the Reformation, surely, I mean, they would have, thought, they would have seen the gospel is, is, is spreading. This is great, right? Go read the letters of the Reformers when they're writing back and forth to each other. They're like, everything's falling apart. This is the end of the world. You really can't find a time when the faithful have thought, wow, things are going great. And yet, 2,000 years later, the gospel is now found in every country on the face of the earth. In spite of the foolishness, or dare I say in some cases because of the foolishness, God, God has his ways of using everything. Now, that doesn't mean that it's okay when people do things wrong. When people harm others, that's precisely an exercise in rule, authority, and power that needs to be dealt with. But since when did that stop Jesus from putting an end to all rule, authority, and power? Paul needs, is, is exhorting us to remember that Jesus is king. And in verse 26 he says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Here he's, he's citing Psalm 8. He, he, he had hinted at this in verse 25, but now he's quoting Psalm 8. And he says, God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, death has already been defeated. But death has not yet been brought to nothing. That will only happen when believers are raised from the dead. Because, in my experience, death still has some power. I will die. But because of the resurrection of Christ, the power of death is now a fleeting and transient power. No longer is... In the, in the Old Testament, this, this is why Sheol always carries this sort of, oh, I will go down to Sheol. But in the New Testament, that's because of the resurrection of Christ, there is no sort of, oh, I will dwell in the world of the dead. No, it's, I, I will depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, even though it's, it's not the resurrection. I mean, that's where sort of the, the New Testament has a few comments about, yeah, in between our death and our resurrection, yeah, we'll be with Jesus, but that's, that's not really what I'm hoping for. What I'm hoping for is the resurrection of the, of the body and the life everlasting. That's, that's where we come at the end of the creed. But, but Christ, Christ has come in order to destroy death, to nullify death. As Paul says in verse 27 28, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. When Adam's error has been fully rectified, when death has been finally brought to nothing, and all the corruption of Adamic rule and power and authority are ended, then the Son will hand the, over the kingdom to the Father in order that God may be all in all, that God may be everything to everyone, that God may be everything in every situation. 
the point being that the Father and the Son are in such perfect harmony that when all things are finally subjected to the Son, then truly all things will finally be subjected to the Father. And that's where, in the application of this, we see how this begins in the life of the church. Uh, Verses 29 to 34 speak of three ways in which the resurrection connects to our daily life. Now, admittedly, verse 29 is, is the strangest verse in the chapter. Uh, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, I cannot tell you with any certainty what Paul means by being baptized on behalf of the dead. I have, I have seen 40 different proposals for what this means, and I am no closer to understanding it than I was before. But I take great comfort in the fact that by as early as, as the second century, pastors were puzzled over what Paul meant by this. So, if in the second century they weren't sure what he meant by this, then we've now made it to the 21st century, we still don't know what he means by this. That's okay. Um, But I can tell you one thing it does not mean. It does not support the Mormon practice of baptizing living people in the place of the dead. Um, So... Uh, in other words, for the, for the Mormons, they, this is, they, 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 can, they can sort of convert dead people by having people baptized. In the first. So, but that's, that's, that's the one view that the early fathers were like, no, that's not what it means. Um, so, there's, there's a simple rule of biblical interpretation. If a passage is, is, is open to several possible interpretations, and one of them is plainly heretical, well then, don't pick that one. <laughs> so, in this case, there's at least 30 Orthodox interpretations. So let's pick one of those. Um, But then secondly, if there is no resurrection, why are we in danger every hour? Paul has endured all sorts of physical trials. Why go through all this if there is no resurrection of the body? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And here he's quoting Isaiah 22. If there's no resurrection then Eliakim was right. Then those who were partying in the face of death were right. Just, why not just enjoy ourselves? And this gets applied to all of us in verses 33 to 34. Do not be deceived. My better translated, stop being deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. If, if you know God, then you won't run with a bad crowd. Bad company ruins good morals is a line from a Greek play. It had become a common saying, and it's, it's a good one. Whoever you surround yourself with is what you will become. If you surround yourself with people who are in rebellion against God, then you will rebel against God. You might tell yourself, oh no, I'm strong, I, w- I won't follow the crowd. But if you are with the crowd, then you are following the crowd. And if you are with people who are seeking Jesus, then you will seek Jesus. And so Paul says, wake up from your drunken stupor and do not continue to sin. Do not remain in your old ways and habits. It's, it's easy to come up with excuses. I mean, he said something hurtful. Well, does that give you the right to say something hurtful back? She always does something I don't, uh, I don't like. Well, then speak to her lovingly and kindly and try to explain. But pastor, you don't understand what I've been through. People like using that one. You're right. 
I don't understand what you've been through. But I do understand how my own misery leads me to tend towards sin, which then leads towards more misery, which then leads towards more sin, which then leads towards more misery, which then leads to more sin, and just spirals downwards towards the pit. Is that what you want? Because that's what the world looks like without the resurrection. So wake up. Because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so he will raise at his coming those who belong to him, those who believe in his name. So repent and believe in Jesus. There's, there's a way in which when he says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning, I mean, that, that, that English sort of, there's, there's very, very few Greek words <laughs> here. It's a very short, pithy way of saying it in Greek, which, which our translators are trying to do well at giving us a nice way. But there's a way in which, it, the way it comes across is, Paul's just saying, stop it. Wake up. Stop it. This is, there's a way, if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then you are no longer who you once were. You are not that person that was you were once. And so, wake up from your drunken stupor. I mean, this this happens to me. I, I, I wish I could say, I wish I could say that this. Oh, yeah, I've just this. This happened to me a long time ago, and I've been fine ever since. But this happens. To, sort of, there there are moments when I sort of like wake up. And it's like, and it's like, oh right, because Paul is trying to kickstart us again and say, remember who you are in Jesus. You're not who you used to be. That's not you anymore. Because you have died with Christ and now you have been raised with him. And so therefore, if this is who you are in Christ, remember that. And then love God and love your neighbor. And and when you forget it next time, repent and believe the gospel. And hopefully the times in between waking up get shorter. (laughs) So let's pray. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us, because we are forgetful, and we fall into stupors too easily, and we forget what you have promised, and we forget what you have done, and we think that there's no way out, and we're stuck where we are. Lord, have mercy. Forgive us, and help us, and renew us by your Holy Spirit, and help us, that we might humble ourselves before your mighty hand, and trust you, because you have done great things in raising your son from the dead. Help us for his sake. Amen.